Good morning, everybody. Welcome into a Tuesday edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. We appreciate you joining us. A lot of choices out there. You made the right one, I think. Of course, I would think that. I mean, it's me, right? This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as the Director of the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Come join us Sunday mornings, 1030, if you don't have a church home. If you want to come by and visit, that'd be great, but I don't want anybody leaving their church to come over there. If you've got a good church home, worship and be thankful that you have a good pastor. All right, um, I'm going to talk about something that really doesn't change world events, okay? It's not going to destroy the planet. It's not going to add value to your investment. It's not going to matter in the 2024 presidential election. It just matters in Tony Beam world. And every now and then I like to talk about Tony Beam world and the things that I would like to see happen. And one of those things is that people would leave baseball alone because it's a great sport. It doesn't have a clock, except now it does. Starting this fall, we're going to have a clock in baseball. They're going to put a clock on the pitcher. It's going to have 30 seconds to throw a pitch. And you can only take the other rule change that's going to be interesting. You know, how are you going to hold a runner on first base? This is They, they put out all these t- statistics demonstrating that, that the people that are making the rules don't understand the game, okay? Because according to these statistics, there were 14,467 attempted pickoff plays in 2022, only 275 were successful. Now, that's 1.9%. So they're saying, okay, because it's never successful, then we need to stop it. We need to, The purpose of throwing to first base is only secondarily to get the runner out. The first purpose is to keep the runner closer so that he's not in a position to take second base. I mean, come on. If you've been watching baseball for five minutes, you should know this. And here's, here's there's a graph in this story. By the way, I'm talking, talking about a story from uh, Dominic Pinto, uh, Pino, who is writing today for National Review. And if you look at a graph that graphs how long baseball games last – Going all the way back to 2002 to the present. In 2002, the average time for a baseball game was 2 hours and 52 minutes. Now, this graph is up and down. You would think it would just be a, the the way you hear people talking about it, it would be a straight climb up to the final point here, which is 3 hours and 3 minutes. But actually, it had a higher point in 2021 and dropped back down to three hours and three minutes in 2022. Looks like it was about three hours and 25 minutes in 2022 and then dropped down to three hours and three minutes. Now, here's the bottom line. In the last, since 2002, from 2002 to 2022, which is the last 20 years, baseball games have lasted roughly 
three hours, no matter what. Now, taking the pitching, when you, when you, when you start thinking about pitching and what is this going to do to put a pitch clock on, they're saying, they're estimating that it's going to shorten the games by maybe 25 minutes. So does anybody think that that's going to make any difference? They don't understand baseball fans. When I go to a baseball game, I I block out the time because I know that I'm not they're, they're not going to run out the clock on me. The game's going to end when one of the teams gets more runs than the other at the end of nine innings or in extra innings if extra innings are needed. And so this year, they're doing away with the shift. Now, I don't care so much about that. I mean, I, I, I think players should be able to, to defensively shift in the field based on the batting average, the batting habits. The, you know, it, it's, it has a lot to do with scouting. It's strategy. You know, baseball is a strategic game. People don't understand that. You, you, you know, when, but when you really get into it and you understand why you start a certain pitcher, how many pitches they're going to have, how long they can stay in there, the, the managers know this. Who's going to be the, the middle reliever? Why are you using this guy? Because if you use him today, you can't use him tomorrow. You, you have to wait in order to use him again. If you pitch him today, which game's more important? Today, tomorrow, are you in a series? Have you Did you win the first game of the series? That matters on what you do with your strategy for the rest of the series. All of that is fascinating stuff. and we, But our attention spans have been totally destroyed. And so we think that all of a sudden, people are going to flock to the baseball stadiums simply because the game's going to last about 20 minutes less. That is a fool's errand. I mean, I like the fact that pitchers stand there and contemplate. I mean, they look to first, look back to home plate, look to first, back to home plate. You know, they get into the windup. This thing is, they're going to have 30 seconds. If the batter causes the pitcher to not be able to complete the 30-second cycle, it's going to be a strike to, uh, to the batter. In other words, it, it'd be like if, if he steps out of the box right when the pitcher's ready to throw or he, he somehow interferes with the pitch clock. And for the pitcher, if he doesn't make the pitch within 30 seconds, it's a ball to the batter. And then the pitcher can only throw over twice for each runner. You get two throws to first base. The third time, if the runner's not out, it's a balk. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. Okay, this I mean, you can see this coming, right, if you're a baseball fan, if you watch the game at all. Runners, once they get to first base, on the, on the third throw, they're, they're going to take a lead that's a mile long. Why? Because... No pitcher is going to risk throwing over there because if you don't get the runner out, it's a balk. He gets to go to second base anyway. And because the percentage of, th of throwing runners out is very small, 1.9% out of all the attempts, um, it's not likely that the pitcher is going to try on the third throw if that means the runner gets to go forward to second base. And all of this to do what? to get more action on the base, to get more runners, to get – and that's the whole purpose of not being able to shift the defense in the field because 
a lot of times you see a, a batter, he grounds right into the shift. And if they hadn't moved, say, second base over about halfway between, um, you know, what, right field and um, you, you know, or, or something like that, th- then the ball would have gotten through and it, w- it would have it been a hit. But because of the shift, they were able to get the runner out. So what they're trying to manufacture is more base runners, more runs scored. They're just tinkering with the game and this whole idea that that people are not going to put up. You know, they're just so tired of going to baseball games and staying for three hours. I I like it. I get up, I go get popcorn, I get a hot dog, I come back and I sit down, and the game's still going on. I mean, I, you know, maybe I miss a a batter. But it's it's not gonna ruin the game for me. I can I can relax. I I like the pace of the game. I just don't think we need this. I think it's tinkering. The other thing they're doing is they're making the bags the the bases bigger. I mean that that's gonna supposedly that's gonna encourage more stealing of of the, trying to steal the base because if you've got you know the wider the base then a lot of these close plays at second where the runner's out, runner will probably be safe because he's got more space on the ground to get to before the ball can get to the second baseman for the tag out or the third baseman or whatever the case may be. Uh, Same thing with bang-bang plays at first. If the bag, if the first baseman's got to cover more of the bag and the runner, you know, how how many base runners do you see when you watch a baseball game, how many times are they out by a step or out by a half a step? Well, those runners are going to be safe because the bag is going to be bigger. They're going to be able to get there faster. So these are just things that are completely unnecessary. And like I said, they're not going to change anybody's world but mine and a few baseball purists who think that they just need to keep their hands off the game. It's a great game. Leave it alone. Let the strategy work because people who love the game enjoy watching the sort of the chess match that's going on between the two managers that's behind the scenes. And this is messing with that. And I think it's going to I don't I don't think it's going to improve the game. Now, I don't think it's going to destroy it either. This is not one of those things, well, baseball's over. No, it's baseball will endure. It'll adjust. People will adjust. It's just that it's unnecessary, and we're only talking about a few minutes here. It's not going to make any difference in terms of attendance. People are coming back to baseball games anyway. Attendance was up last year, and I think that's a trend that's going to continue because there's there's just, I think, people look for a place where they can go to have a leisurely afternoon and they don't have to worry about the clock. You know, if we really want to ruin baseball, let's just do it. Somebody just called and said, what about seven innings? Look, why don't we just let both sides bat once and whoever, if if nobody scores, we just go home. If somebody scores, it's a win. If nobody scores, we just eat a hot dog. Of course, we wouldn't even have time to eat a hot dog. It'd be a 20-minute baseball game. What if we what if we put in a rule that says the pitchers uh, the catcher's got to count to three before he throws to second on a steal? Or how about if you hit a ball in the outfield? Doesn't have to go over the wall. If it's in the outfield and it bounces, it's a home run. Let's just ruin the game. I mean, let, let, if we're gonna do this, 
let's just take and make it into something totally different so that people really will stay away in an attempt to get people to come to the game. I think they, I think they went sense. to seven innings for a doubleheader at one point. I, I don't know. I quit I watching because they start messing with all these rules, and it's ridiculous. Well, look, I don't mind rule changes that are I, – I, I, now, I didn't like the fact that when you walk up to the plate, you can just say, I'm, wa- I'm going to walk, and then you just walk. I mean, you, the, the pitcher doesn't have to throw four pitches. Okay, well, that's that was slowing down the game. Yeah, it's also – how many times have you seen a pass ball – on a walk where a batter gets to first base, it changes the nature of the game. I just, you know, I, people's attention spans, they've been destroyed. And we, we, we can't just find something that takes a little bit of time that allows us to relax and concentrate and focus for a period of time instead of having to have our senses constantly bombarded by some kind of action and activity. The beauty of baseball is the pace of the game, and we're going to mess around and ruin that. I mean, I, not yet. I don't think the pitch clock's going to do it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think we need it. I think it's unnecessary, and I think the game will lose something uh, because of the way that it's going to change the way runners run the bases. So, all right, um, l- let me explain how we do vice in a conservative state. In particular, now, in most states, if if you want to add a vice like California or New York or New Jersey, all you have to do is just say, "We're going to have betting to the max. We're going to let people bet on anything. We're going to completely destroy the middle class and people who are struggling by giving them an opportunity to throw their money away away with casino gambling." And and by the way, we've seen how that worked out in in Atlantic City, right? I mean, it you know all of the the bankruptcies, the corruption that is associated with Atlantic City. You want to see what casino gambling does to a place? Go to Las Vegas, right up and down the Strip. Now you may think that oh, it's beautiful. Look at all these. Look at look at Caesar's Palace. Look at all these beautiful uh, casinos. Yeah, look at the culture around the gambling that's grown up in Las Vegas. I mean, you can't walk down the street without somebody shoving a paper in your hand trying to get you to come to some legal uh, brothel that's, that has been established. I mean, the, the amount of corruption and the amount of bad effects that accompanies gambling. So back to my point, in a liberal state run by progressives— Nobody cares about the human cost of what happens when you put in gambling or when you put in marijuana or when you put in extremely liberal alcohol rules. We start handing out needles to drug users to try to make it so that they don't get infected and it it saves their life. Once you begin to support a culture of corruption and immorality, then it, it just changes the entire atmosphere of whatever place all of that has been allowed in. Well, you can't just walk into South Carolina and do that because it, South Carolinians as a whole understand that we've got a good thing going on here. This is a great place to live. It's a great place to, to raise a family. It's got a really good climate. We've got the mountains. We've got the beach. We've got parks. We've got 
wildlife. I mean, we've got just about anything anybody could want a good economy here in South Carolina. I mean, most people are able to find jobs. If you're able to work, you can get a job in South Carolina for the most part. Now, I'm sure there are people that may be listening to the program that have been looking for a job and they're getting mad right now because they're saying, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I'm talking about in general. I'm talking about for the majority. If, if you look at South Carolina, we've got a, a, a fairly um, – Decent unemployment rate. I, I didn't look it up before I started this because I'm, I'm talking about this in conjunction with something else. But the point being, South Carolina is a good place to live. And there are those who every day want to change the very nature of the culture and society that we've built in South Carolina that's family friendly by introducing elements that would eventually change the culture completely. But you can't do it overnight. You can't, you, you have to link vice to some kind of good thing. Let me, let, let me just point this out with the difference between the lottery and video poker. Now, we were able to get rid of video poker in South Carolina because it was obviously just a drag on people's lives. I mean, it was, it was hurting people. It was hurting families. It was diverting money out of the mouths of children into the hands of profiteers who were profiting off of gambling, and it was causing destruction in people's lives. There, there's no question about that. There was no good thing coming out of gambling, out, out of video poker gambling. Now, the lottery, when they decided we were going to have a lottery, it became what? the education lottery. See, what we're going to do is people are going to play the lottery anyway. So let's legalize it and take that money and do something really good with it. Let's build up the education system in South Carolina. Let's put all this money into education. We won't be 49th or 50th anymore. With the education lottery, we're going to raise ourselves up to just all kinds of heights because of the money that's going to come in from people that are buying lottery tickets. And the state bought that. I mean, we, we looked at that and we said, okay, that's a trade-off that we're willing to make. We'll let people come in and buy their lottery tickets, and we'll take the money and we'll, we'll put it to education, a good portion of it. We'll increase scholarships. We'll do all of this. And, and look, make no mistake, um, at the, at the education lottery has benefited higher education. Uh, I mean, it's the, the money gets distributed, and, and I get it. Um, there's, there's some good things that have happened. But if you look overall at education in South Carolina, money is never the answer to a problem because people have to take money and do something with it in order for it to be efficacious. Money doesn't – just because you've got money and you spend money – it doesn't mean that what you're spending the money on is going to improve the thing that you're trying to improve. You have to be wise with the way you spend it. It's where the money gets invested. It's who invests it. It's the ideas behind where the money is going that determines whether or not it, it makes a difference, a positive difference in any field, whatever field it is. But my point is this. You've got to change people's minds about a thing before that thing becomes acceptable so that people will begin to accept the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. That's why we didn't start with legalized pot. We're not going to just start 
with you know weed and feed stores where people can go in and while they're uh, stopped by the hardware store and they're picking up uh, chicken feed and whatever else that they need, they're gonna they can buy their weed. I mean that that's not gonna happen. You're not gonna have gas stations sell, selling marijuana overnight. Not in South Carolina. We've got to get used to it. We we've got to introduce this as an altruistic thing. Let's have medical marijuana because it is gonna alleviate suffering. And then, oh yeah, once we get medical marijuana, once we get people accustomed to the idea that it's a good thing to be high, then we'll get recreational marijuana so the state can get rich off the misery of people who get addicted. And the state can get rich off of people who are basically putting something in their body that's going to change their brain capacity down the road because we know that marijuana can do that for young people. So... But, but that's, that's the way it works. Now, there's a whole new thing that's trying to be introduced in South Carolina right now that goes down the same road. Do you know how many people, you know how, you know how long people have wanted to get into South Carolina with paramutual betting? That is, sports betting. And there's a there's an article in the Post and Courier. I've I'm quoted in there because I was interviewed uh, for the guy that did this piece, and this is Alexander Thompson at the Post, the uh, Charleston Post and Courier. Here's the headline: South Carolina horse industry needs help. Is legalizing gambling the right bet? Isn't that a great, great? T- see see what he did there? Play on words: legalizing gambling the right bet to save the equine industry in South Carolina. Now, it goes into a long presentation here of the decline of the equine industry in South Carolina, how, you know, we used to have stables that were full. We used to have uh, a robust equine industry, but it's it's faltering because, and, and one of the reasons is global warming, by the way, because northern states are now experiencing warmer winters due to global warming. I mean, they had to put that in there. Uh, then more and more people are able to keep their horses up north. They don't have to bring them to South Carolina. South Carolina's had a perfect climate, according to this story, for the equine industry. But they're struggling. They need cash infusion. So the best way to save the equine industry is to let people start betting on horse racing. And, and that's exactly what a bill in South Carolina that's in the Senate right now would do. It would open up gambling in South Carolina for horse racing. Now, you there's no way that people would accept it if you just came out and said, hey, we want to have horse races and we want to bet on them and we want bookies to make a lot of money and we want the people behind the betting to get the money. No, we we want to put a fund together that's going to funnel that a, a good portion of that money that you're gambling with. It's going to go to make the equine industry better. Instead of just taking some of the surplus that we have in South Carolina and the South Carolina budget and helping the equine industry, if we think that's an important industry, if we think they need help, then let's invest somehow. Let's find a way to invest in the equine industry to get it back on its feet without introducing a destructive force in order to pay for it. 
because Richard Ca Senator Richard Cash and Senator Mike Gambrell are both quoted in here as saying the truth. They both voted against this thing going to the Senate floor because they said the cost of gambling is always greater than any benefit that you get, particularly betting, paramutual betting, because this is similar to video poker. And this is, you know, this is let's get this form of gambling and let's help the equine industry. Oh, are we comfortable, South Carolina? You, you, uh, you conservatives out there, have we lulled you into a sense of security? Okay, let's open up some casinos. Look at how much casino gambling could do for the state. Well, we could make, even though we've got massive budget surpluses, without the, the grift and the grind and the bad consequences that come from gambling, we, we, need to, we need to have casino gambling so we can really open up the floodgates of all the money that will flow into the state. Yes, the, flood the floodgates that will get open are all the people that are going to get hurt. The people's lives are going to be destroyed because gambling is addictive. It takes money away from wealth out of the economy and transfers it to the people who run the gambling operations. And, and can I just tell you something? Why is gambling successful? Do you know why they have casinos? Do you think it's because most of the people that go into the casinos come out winners? You know, that, that's how they make their money in a casino. That's how paramutual betting would benefit the equine industry because most of the people that put money on horse racing are going to win. No. Most of the people are going to lose, and the money they lose is money that gets taken out of the economy for other purposes. You know, if, if I've got, let, let, let me just give you this example. If i got $100,000 in annual income, and let's say that of that $100,000, $25,000 is disposable income, and I'm going to go you know, the, to the beach for a week in the summer. I'm going to take my disposable income and I'm going to buy a motorcycle or I'm going to get an ATV or I'm going to get into a hunt club or I'm going to invest in this or invest in that. Now, let's suppose that a good portion of that disposable income begins to be frittered away with either with paramutual betting. I mean, where who's going to hurt the people that say, oh, this is going to bring people to South Carolina and it's going to it's going to encourage business. Yeah, in the places where the horse races take place. But the other places where people, the money is being shuttled away from people whose disposable income is being invested in horse racing and they're losing, that money doesn't get invested in South Carolina and nobody ever talks about that consequence. I was looking at the part here in this story where it actually talks about global warming as being part of the problem uh, that has caused the horse population in South Carolina to dwindle because people up north are not having to bring their horses down here to a favorable climate since the climate is becoming more favorable in northern states due to global warming. Uh, the quote they put in here from me, let's see if I can find it. Um, yeah, this is Representative Rus Russell Ott, Democrat from St. Mat Matthews. We're just trying to infuse dollars into an industry that's desperately been unattended for a long time. Okay, infuse some dollars into it. 
it's you, you know we're willing to spend money on everything else why do we have to have gambling to help the equine industry uh we don't that's the answer this is an excuse See, this again, you've got to have an altruistic motive if you're going to introduce some kind of new vice into an environment where people generally are conservative and don't want vices to come in to a culture that makes South Carolina a really great place to raise a family. So you've got to you've got to step in it lightly. You've got to bring it in a little bit at a time. You've got to point out the value that this is going to have for people who need the money. It's what they did with the education lottery. It's what they're now trying to do with the equine industry to get paramutual betting foot in the door in South Carolina. Gene, go ahead. Well, this is another example of what I call government-endorsed institutionalized sin. Okay, People talk about... Uh, 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 systemic racism is institutionalized in, in, uh, uh, in America. No, 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 no. It's sin that has been institutionalized. What, I don't know, in your uh, study of this matter of gambling, did you ever look at, uh, did anybody comment on statistics regarding suicide rates in the geographical regions where gambling is practiced? I've seen that information before, Gene. I don't have it in front of me at the moment. It's, it, it's high. Uh, yes, and, it's hot. And it's a, um, it's a fact that, that tends not to be addressed at all. Uh, I lived in Connecticut where they, had, uh, where they thrived on the gambling casinos to be the, uh, the tool or the, the funding of education. And every year, what, I, uh, what was interesting is that every year they would count how much more money they received uh, from uh, the year before for their gambling receipts, and yet the state still needed to uh, fund more education. Absolutely insane. Then it came to a point where every year the State Department of Education was having uh, uh, one-week hiatus vacations for their staff. Yeah, Gene. Gene, thanks for the call. Look, um, I I know what libertarians would say about this. Okay, They'll say we you conservatives are stuffed shirts. You're trying to uh, force your moral. Uh, absolutes on to the rest of us. Everybody ought to just be able to have the right to do whatever it is they want to do and let the consequences fall where they may, particularly when it comes to things like gambling, uh, when it comes to things like marijuana use, all of those things. That, that, that's the libertarian argument. Let everybody be free to do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Gambling hurts everybody else. So does marijuana use. See, this is the thing that that gets lost in these conversations. It, it The assumption is that this only affects the people who decide to participate. Well, society doesn't work like that. Our culture is interlocked. When people get hurt because of gambling, it affects the children in the home. It affects the marriage. And if a marriage falls apart because of bad gambling debts, that affects the, the fabric of society and culture. And it causes just a multitude of problems down the line for children that then come out of a broken home. Not to mention the people that have to turn for help when they get addicted to this kind of stuff. Gambling is highly addictive. And South Carolina is doing fine without it. If we need to invest in the equine industry, let's invest in it. Here's an example, 
they're talking about a particular race. And and by the way, I you know, I I don't know anything about horse racing in South Carolina. The only thing I know is the Colonial Cup because when I was in college, I never I never went, but a lot of my fraternity brothers would make that an annual event. You go to the Colonial Cup. Cup. Now they went to drink primarily. I mean, that's you know, it was a opportunity to be outside and to have consume copious amounts of alcohol. Um, and but it was also, I mean, they enjoyed the the race. Um, but but here's the thing that in this story they're talking about the collapse of one of these races that takes place in Ellery every year. So here's the story. Ellery will learn what the equine industry's slow death could mean for rural communities the hard way this spring. After organizational efforts fell apart, Smith had to cancel the 2023 edition of the Ellery Trials, horse races that have been held every year at the training center's track since 1963, save a COVID-19 pandemic hiatus. Between 3,500 and 6,000 people usually pour into the one stoplight town for 600 of the weekend, uh, town of 600, I'm sorry, for the weekend of the trials, Smith said. Now, Smith is, let's back up here, uh, is uh, the person who is in charge or puts this race on every year. So, but, but here's my question. All the story says is that organizational efforts just fell apart. Why? Okay, is it because we don't have gambling? What are we saying here? Well, these organizational efforts, how would gambling and money have changed the organizational efforts? I have no idea what that means. I don't know if that means they couldn't secure um, enough um, you know, space to have the race. I, I don't have any and, – and the question evidently wasn't asked. Okay, these races are not going to take place. The people of Ellery are going to suffer. 3,500 to 6,000 people are not going to come to this one stoplight town of 600 and bring all of their money and invest it. Okay, I get that. But it's been going on since 1963 without paramutual betting. Why did the organizational efforts fall apart this year? Well, we just have to guess because that's not the point. The point is is not that somebody couldn't put the race together. The point is that because we're not going to have the race, then all these people are not going to come to town and the economy is going to suffer. And if we had paramutual betting, then you're supposed to believe that the money would have been there. Magically, the organization would have come together and they'd have been able to have the race. Does that really make sense to anybody? If these are races that have been going on since 1963? Come on. Give me a little help here. Tell me why the organizational efforts fell apart. And and don't tell me it's because we don't have paramutual betting. Okay, um, here's the part where I was quoted in the story. Let me jump in here and read just a little bit of, uh, of the story. Others say this is after a long explanation of all the benefits of paramutual betting and how it would save the equine industry and um, how it would just, I mean, the flowers would bloom quicker in South Carolina. Uh, the sky would be bluer. 
the air would be fresher. I mean, it would just be amazing the things that will happen if we just open up the door and allow paramutual betting in South Carolina. Uh, but then the stories that others say that it's the start of a slippery slope for other forms of betting to get a foot in the door. And then here's the quote from me. Everything we want to push the envelope with begins narrowly and then becomes broad, said Tony Bean, the public policy director for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Surely we can be a little more creative figuring out how to help people who are in the equine industry to be successful without starting a whole new set of problems that will arise from having gambling. I, that to me, that's my case. There, we, we have a problem. Vice is never the solution. We, when, you, when you have a problem, it makes sense to find a solution that doesn't come with a whole set of problems attached to it that eventually could outgrow the nature of the problem that you started with. And gambling is like that. All right, um, 888-660-9535 if you want to weigh in on all that. Uh, there's a poll out today. The state newspaper is talking about this. It's, a, it's actually a Harvard-Caps-Harris survey that was conducted on February 15th and 16th. And those who were asked in the poll, this was a presidential poll, they were asked if they would choose Biden and Trump to win their respective party primaries in 2024. And Biden and Trump both came out on top. This went to 1,838 registered voters. So Democrats right now, want Biden. Republicans right now want Trump with the only person that's within striking distance of President Trump, according to this poll, is Ron DeSantis. Vice President Kamala Harris takes second in the Democrat Party, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis takes second on the Republican side. Polling shows, however, that Biden would not do as well in a second matchup against the 45th president as he did in the first when he earned a historic 81,283,098 votes, or 51.3% of the votes cast, becoming the first candidate to earn more than 80 million votes. Trump won just 46.8% of the vote, or 74,222,958 votes the last time around. Despite that, the former president those surveyed indicated, would win a rematch by a fairly wide margin. According to the polling memo, President Trump would beat Joe Biden by five points in the general election. Conversely, the, the survey shows that President Trump's nearest opponent and Joe Biden are virtually tied in a hypothetical general election, Trump's campaign wrote in response to the poll's results. So in other words, Trump wins by five, DeSantis and Biden would be tied according to this poll. Now, I have no idea what the quest, what questions were asked. I, and, and by the way, polls like this that are out now are not a, a very good indicator of what the race is going to shape up to be. You, remember, you've only got two declared Republican candidates. You've got Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. And by the way, the, the, the left right now, progressives are doing Nikki Haley a big favor by attacking her because they're attacking her race. They're attacking the fact that she's a minority. They're attacking her age. They're being bigoted and sexist against her. And I'm, if they think that's, that's hurting her with the things that they're saying, I, you know, may their tribe increase. 
because they're going to insult her right into the nomination if they keep that up. And I'm not look. I I think Nikki Haley's fine. I'm I'm not speaking out against her. I don't, I don't pick primary uh, candidates at this particular time of, of in the in the race, but. Nikki Haley is going to be formidable. She's a good communicator. She's very polished and yet very affable, very likable, very laid back. People like her. And they're not going to stop liking her if the left calls her names and tries to smear her. I mean, some of the things that was said about her, let me let me just pull this up because that basically that's the information that I wanted you to to get out of this poll. It's a it's a fairly good sampling. Um, and, and, and again, we don't know what the questions are, so it's hard to pass judgment on the validity of the poll other than it's early. Uh, 13% remain undecided. Of those surveyed, 46% would choose Trump over Biden's 41%. Those numbers are actually unchanged from January survey results, pollsters, ind- pollsters indicated. So still, early. Not enough candidates out there to figure out if this is really going to hold, once other candidates get in and you got all kind of stuff flying back and forth, it's going to make a difference. But while that's going on, you've got Nikki Haley, who is in the race, and you've got MSNBC guest Wahat Ali ratcheting up the racism on Sunday evening to attack former, former Governor Nikki Haley, who's the daughter of Indian immigrants, claiming that she was essentially using her brown skin to launder white supremacist talking points. That's what he said about her. That's racist. That's a, I mean, why? Because she, because she has brown skin, because she is a minority, then the left progressives have to attack her some in some way because of her race, and they think that's going to bring voters to the Democrat Party? Ali was responding to Haley's campaign launch. She announced last week that she planned to seek the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. To quote Zora Neale Hurston, not all skin folk are kin folk. See, this is, in other words, if, if your ideology is not progressive, then you're not really black. If your ideology is not progressive, you're not really a minority. So it's not about skin color for these people. It's about their ideology. It's about whether they get in line with the progressive talking points. And if you don't, then your skin color doesn't matter. Nikki Haley, instead, is the Danish D'Souza of Candace Owens. She's the Alpha Karen with brown skin. And for white supremacists and racists, she's a perfect Manchurian candidate, Ali began. And his comments only got worse the more he talked, more racially charged. He said, I'm just disgusted by people like Nikki Haley who know better. The, like the View host Sonny Hostin did, that Haley only really embraced her ethnicity when it would benefit her politically. Oh, let me see if I can think of a progressive that did that, like uh, maybe uh, Elizabeth Warren by claiming that she was Native American on applications that she filled out. See, it's okay for progressives to lie about their ethnicity if it gets them ahead and wins them points in the public arena, but when when conservatives can actually step up and honestly they are a minority, but but if there's any reference to that to them being a minority, then well they're just they're just uh, you know they're tools of white supremacist. 
That's the whole idea coming out of these talking points. And if they think that's hurting Nikki, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley had this to say. She said, you know, um, she said on Monday on Fox News to Martha McCallum, she said, I'm unfazed by all of this. She said, if that's all they've got to attack me, they have nothing substantial, substantial, and that means that I'm winning. That's the exact response that she ought to have at this point.